0: Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the only association for those with a professional interest in neuromarketing. Visit www.nmsba.com for events and membership details. And Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Email McGee at decisionbreakers.com to see how they can help you win your war in store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision making. My name is Phil McGee, and I'm speaking today with Constant Barakow, a retail, marketing, and shopper insights expert with over 20 years experience at companies such as Hold, Kraft Foods, Procter & Gamble, and PepsiCo. Today, he runs his own agency, Ringbird Avies and and when when constant says hi he can he can provide the correct pronunciation of that um, and it's it's based out of the netherlands where he lives with his wife and two children and he just released his second book titled assortment and merchandising strategy building a retail plan to drive shopper experience which is what we're going to talk about in today's episode we've got a lot to cover but before we begin constant welcome to shoppernomics well, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm so pleased you could be with us today, Constant. Uh, I gave a, a brief overview of your bio, but I'm sure there's more everyone would like to know about you. Can you take a minute and tell us a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do?
1: Well, I started some 20 years ago when I started off in uh, in retail. Um, um, actually, I started my career at the time that category management was born, or actually ECR, efficient cushion response. Uh, was born, and I learned a lot about that because it meant that the industry, the retail industry, moved from yeah the old-fashioned buying towards yeah integrated category management with a long-term vision. So it was a very interesting uh, time. Um, and on, well, during my career, I moved to different companies, um, food and non-food retail, um, and also into um, food. Uh, Uh, suppliers like Kraft Foods and PepsiCo, and my last role before I started my own company uh, was when I was responsible for shopper marketing and shopper insights uh, at PepsiCo Europe, which was interesting as well because it meant both building business and trade marketing practice in Eastern European countries, but at the same time applying really new technologies like uh, what we would call right now uh, data science, but also neuromarketing in Western Europe. And and right now I have my own company and I consult uh, both retailers and suppliers.
0: And and do everybody a favor and give the correct pronunciation of your company's name?
1: Okay, well, (laughs) no worries, but it is Rijnbrug Advies and Rijnbrug Actually, means uh, the bridge over the Rhine, and at least means Kozluci.
0: And I understand that you you do work, um, I think, primarily in the Netherlands, but you have clients as far as China and Asia.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's correct. So occasionally I work uh, for retailers in uh, in um, in China, in India, um, well, Oman, India, uh, Indonesia. So um, every now and then I get invited to. Facilitate category management trainings or help build new concept stores in, uh, in Asia. Uh, so, yeah, that makes it really interesting.
0: It, it is interesting, but it also, I think, points out the fact that, and I think this is something you mentioned in your book, that the things that you wrote about and that we're going to talk about today really are um, to be considered universal truths, right? Things that will transcend geographies, cultures, uh, languages, and 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 other you know distinctions which are, you know, generally important right as part of, of as part of context matters, but the the you know what you what you've uncovered and and described are really things that are more about assortment, assortment presentation and human nature, um which are and and, and are more generalizable. Is that fair to say?
1: Uh, yes. That that so. Uh... Always I'm looking for the, um, the deeper truth, um, uh, when it comes to the shopper mind. And, um, I think that, um, yeah, we are, um, set up as a human being in such a way that, um, um some of the, uh, ways we respond, uh, are just, uh, similar, uh, across the globe. Uh, no matter the specific retail context or technology that is applied. And I'm sure we'll come back to that later, but um, many of the um, merchandising assortment principles that I suggest will work
0: both in an online and offline environment. Yes, and and not to imply that context doesn't matter. In fact, um, you spend a, a lot of time in your book talking about the importance of context and the contextual influences that can play out as you're considering you know your assortment and merchandising strategy so um you know we'll get into that but um but i I wanted to have you as a guest because i read your book and i enjoyed it thoroughly you put a lot of work into it clearly and a lot of thought into it um which which helps make sense out of um out of some you know pretty pretty difficult uh, topics In, in fact i wouldn't say it was an easy read uh, but then again, it's not an easy topic. Um, you know, I, I will say you did a very good job distilling a great amount of learning, both from academic literature and your own professional experience, into a really nice cohesive reference book uh, for those that are interested in improving the shopper experience in their stores. So there's um, so thank you for joining us, and there is a lot of co- a lot I want to cover today. So um, so we'll just dive right in, and I'll start by asking, you know, what was your motivation for writing this book?
1: Um, well, I think the, the idea for the book um, has slowly arising after completing assignments with a couple of retailers. So all kinds of questions came up during my assignments. And um, uh, well, an observation that I made is that uh, in many instances in, in assignments, um, the assortment decisions were made separately for merchandising decisions. So what I mean is that uh, typically non-food retailers would start ordering assortment and making decisions on the quantity and the uh, the size and of the of the product and the uh, the packaging uh, without taking into account um, the environment where they would be placed. And in fact, we would be um, space enough at all. Yeah. And the more I started dig- started digging into these questions, I came. Uh, across more questions than answers. Um, I also let say um, 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 let's say start digging into the question like the of, of why if if less is more is true And I found it very difficult to believe because you know um, uh, only for example Amazon in the US offers more than 600 million products and still people start their search at Amazon. So how can it be you know that seems to be a paradox. So all these questions came together and tried to solve them. And uh, for me, uh, the academic research is always a nice starting point. But um, so I was reading the academic research at the same time that I was uh, yeah in the middle of some really interesting uh, assignments, uh, retail assignments.
0: So, you know, obviously you talk a lot about assortment planning and assortment presentation um, and, and importantly, the challenge for retailers who want to offer a full range of products to their shoppers, but at the same time they want to help their shoppers avoid the choice overload. Um, so, you know, what would you say are some of the things that retailers can do to help achieve that balance? Yeah, I,
1: I think this is about one of the most um, uh, most frequently asked questions. Yeah? And and the uh, similar one is like, well, uh, what should be the size of my assortment? And and of course, it's like. Really difficult to give an answer in a particular case, but um, um, we should understand that um, retailers offer large assortments because they know it will draw a lot of traffic to the stores. And large assortments are actually also sought for by shoppers themselves. Intrinsically, they have a really deep need for more assortment, for variety, for choice, because that gives them um, one-stop shopping, but also the sense that they are being into control in control of the situation. Um, at the same time, nobody wants the complexity and the choice stress that comes with a with a large assortment. And I think what what I've realized uh, in my assignments is that actually you can do ju- use um, merchandising as a way of solving this paradox of um, trying to avoid the choice stress, uh, but at the same time, uh, making sure that people have the feeling of a really full and complete assortment.
0: When I was reading your book, I was reminded of a conference that I attended by the um, uh, Marketing Science Institute. It was a a uh, retail-themed conference in New York. And uh, Barbara Kahn from Wharton, and, and I know you referenced Barbara a number of times in your book, she was presenting and she was talking about the point you just made, which is the relationship between your assortment and the way the assortment is presented. And um, and at the end, uh, you know, during the question answer part, um, I raised my hand and my question was, where have you been all my life? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. she finally busted the myth about the kind of the big takeaway everyone has from choice choice um, architecture, which is um, you know too much choice leads to choice overload, and and that is not true in the absolute right. And so, um, and, and 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 you address that head on in your book, which is wonderful. Um, so you know, but kind of going along our line of conversation, it's it's often said that the the big head of assortment sells, but the long tail of assortment attracts. Um, how can a retailer reduce its assortment size for reasons of efficiency? You know, should it want to, while at the same time remaining attractive to its shoppers? So there
1: are, there are let's say many techniques, and I I am really um no, I'm a font reader of the uh, academic uh, pieces that Barbara Kahn wrote, so she's a really excellent um, yeah, professor of marketing. Um, so let's—I think the, the solution is that um, the realization that there is a difference between actual assortment and the perception of the size of the assortment. And once you realize that, you can actually start playing with the perception that people have of the assortment. So first of all, you should determine for yourself if you would like to have a lar- the perception of a large assortment in your store as a concept. Because sometimes, for example, um, in a convenience um, store concept, it's not necessarily you want to give people at least the, uh, the perception of a large assortment. It's fine if they have a, um, a perception of a small, a small assortment. But for example, if people... I still would like to give this perception: how you can you play with that, and there are several techniques and and uh, merchandising solutions for that in the book. Um, and basically, they help shoppers manage the level of complexity and stress, and still at the same time uh, give them the perception of a, a huge variety. Um, an example could be the application of labels, and what I mean with that is uh, you could think of a uh, bookstore and uh, you have like a section of magazines and in this section of magazines you could use um, labels for sub-segments like health and sports and lifestyle but you could also uh, take them out and actually in one of in, in a really interesting studies compared all kinds of store environments like this and they found out that if you increase the number of labels, um, people think the assortment is larger. However, um, when the researchers um, increased the number of titles of magazines, actually the assortment perception of the size of the assortment did not change. So, if you want to make sure you have a um, um, let's say a, a, a certain size of assortment and you don't want to have um, too much stock. And uh, returns of magazine, and um, but still um, give people the perception of a large assortment. You can actually start increasing the number of labels without increasing uh, the number of titles. And so this could be an example. And another, um, and I make a comparison with another merchandising technique which is uh, applied a lot uh, online, which is filtering. Um, This can also be applied offline, but uh, it's a very popular technique, of course, online. The difference, if you apply filtering, what you should realize is that not only uh, it will reduce choice stress and it will make the decision-making easier for the shopper, but at the same time, people also think the actual assortment um, has been reduced. So this is the difference with the other technique where, With labeling, you can actually give the people the perception that the assortment size is still fine. But with filtering, you should always remember that if you apply it, people also think you have a smaller assortment.
0: Really interesting. So you you mentioned convenience stores and and the fact that they don't really need to create perceptions of wide assortment. Uh, It's not going to hurt them, but I don't think people walk into convenience stores expecting a wide assortment. Yeah. Um, but of course, grocery retailers, it, it is important, and, and there are those that offer limited assortments. You know, I think of Aldi and Trader Joe's, for example, um, who have limited assortments, but you know it's still to their advantage to create perceptions of large assortments. How successful would you say they've been at managing their shoppers' perceptions of choice?
1: Uh, I think, it, let's say that's one of the ingredients of their success. I think um, their success uh, also depends on, is also a result uh, of their, uh, let's say, overall low pricing. Um, but increasingly increasingly so, uh, their success also depends on their, and the choices that they make, um, uh, and the selection of high quality uh, products. Um, let's say Aldi and Lidl um, uh, and are, let's say, are um, concepts, retail concepts that originate uh, um, from Germany. And um, an interesting study in Germany showed that they um, may have up to eight times fewer products, but actually when you look at the variation in terms of attributes and attribute levels of those products, they offer four times less choice. So um, still, it is true, Um, in a discount concepts, offer less choice and therefore reduce complexity. But actually when you look at the variety of products, these buyers of Aldi and Trader Joe's are really smart buyers. They know to select the items well. And for those that are interested to look to look into uh, this uh, uh, more thoroughly, um, then they should look at concepts like entropy and density of the assortment. And uh, probably takes um, a little bit too much time to explain the, these concepts uh, concepts in full. Uh, but what people should take away is that it is possible to measure variety in an objective way to actually. Uh, distill from assortments if there is uh, enough variety in the assortment, or if one category actually um, uh, should be bigger than the other one, uh, just based on the number of attributes and attribute levels that are available in the assortment.
0: Right. So um, you talked about yeah. using labels strategically to create perceptions of broader assortment. What would you say is Maybe the most important tactic that Aldi, Trader Joe's, Lidl, that they're using in their limited assortment, in order to create those perceptions of broad assortment um, that you mentioned. You know, they're, they're sure people recognize that they have less assortment. You know, four times less. But the reality is they have eight times less. So, um, so they're not tricking anybody into believing they have a wide assortment. But they are given more credit than they deserve for the assortment that they have how 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 are they able to do that is there is there kind of one big thing Um, that they do or do they have multiple things
1: well but but i think what they do really well is that when they approach um, um own brand uh producers or if they approach uh a brand um producers suppliers uh they always want the highest rotating, most favorite product of the category. So um, they they don't want to, typically they don't want to have like an old flavor. They want to have the highest rotating flavor. So they want to make sure they go for the highest rotating items. And that in itself is an indication that the assortment is complete. So it seems, it seems to be a little bit strange if I would suggest not to... Um, uh, list the most rotating item, but what you should realize is that once the highest rotating item is on shelf and the highest rotating flavor is on shelf, um, that is actually a signal to the shopper that the assortment is complete. So um, it's, I, I think it's the um, intuitive cleverness of the uh, discount retailers um, that, that uh, let's say, leads to their success.
0: In your answers so far, you've really kind of addressed what I think is probably the most important book or most important point in your book and something I feel very strongly about is that, you know, the integration of assortment and merchandising strategies is really important and, and not really to think about them as independent strategies. Um, talk a little bit more about this and why you say it's so important.
1: Yeah, it probably makes sense now to, you know, from a holistic perspective, always to, to make sure that you um, take into account these um, uh, these decisions. And, uh, uh, yeah, but, but still, if you look, at least during my assignments, I noticed that uh, it doesn't always happen. And I would say there are many practical benefits and there are more strategic benefits if you start integrating those decisions. And. Um, so from a practical uh, perspective, um, well, I've worked in a, at a retailer uh, where the buyer at the Shanghai Trade Fair decided on the assortment just based on a book, a photo book, because actually she, the buyer was at the time ordering um, yeah, all kinds of swimming pool inflatables and toys. And actually, the items themselves wouldn't fit into the uh, booth at the Chinese at the at the Shanghai trade fair. So she was deciding just based on margin. And actually, only six months later, she would see the products and uh, realize how big they were. Um, um, perhaps um, find out about the color of the packaging. Uh, find out if it would match the remainder of the Uh, items in the category. So let's see. this is like a really pragmatic, uh, practical example of why it makes sense to, why this buyer should know about the size and the um, and the color and all the other uh, characteristics of the product. But at the same time, there are also strategic benefits. Um, Imagine that you are a um, producer of a new brand of um, uh, cereal bars. And you could launch that cereal bar as a regular cereal cereal, cereal bar and um, uh, get a place on on the the cereal aisle. But at the same time, um, you could also position this product as a healthy breakfast product and make sure that it's uh, placed alongside yogurt and uh, juice and... Um, um, fruit, but that also means that you uh, need to think ahead of the specific piece of merchandising that you need that probably needs to hold both ambient and refrigerated products. The benefit could be that uh, you don't need so many um, flavors of um, uh, cereal bars because at the moment you provide it like a solution to the shopper like a breakfast or healthy uh, snack solution, you actually need less variety from a shopper perspective. So um, once you start integrating those decisions, you actually know then uh, ahead time that if you introduce it as a um, solution, you need less variety. Whereas if you uh, launch it alongside other cereal bars, you need to offer a full assortment and uh, the diet ones and the chocolate ones and the whatever, all kinds of uh, types uh, because uh, that is what people will look for once it is presented alongside the other brands of cereal.
0: It's not just about presenting the assortment that you already plan to buy, but it's also about reconsidering what you plan to buy in the first place as a retail buyer yeah yes yep. yeah really really buyer. important point I'm, I'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned that i'm i'm sure our listeners are wondering um and you already alluded to this earlier um but i want to talk a little bit more about it and that is whether the assortment and merchandising strategies proposed in your book uh work in both online and brick and mortar uh environments um talk about your thoughts there and and, and what you've learned about the the dual application of of your principles? Well, I think there will always be, um, you know, uh, there are different uh,
1: environments. So um, I'm sure there will be differences, uh, but I think it's important to realize that there are two factors at play here. There is a technology factor and a human um, bias. So from a technology perspective, of course, the... um, there's a difference between online and offline contacts. So um, in an online environment, most likely you already know the shopper, perhaps based on a loyalty card system or you recognize them based on previous visits. And you can already um, yeah, frame the context, uh, personalize the offer, um, whatever, uh, use some filtering techniques that are uh, based on that specific shopper. So, um, of course, what I mean is that in an online environment, so much more is possible from a technology perspective. However, what we should not forget is that uh, both online and offline, um, you target the same person. Uh, you, It's the um, same shopper with certain cognitive capabilities and the same biological setup. And many of our responses are um yeah come from that or originate from this our limited cognitive capabilities. And to give you an example, um and, and I'm sure that you are familiar with the work by uh Synthine and Taylor, the about nudging and about the work by Daniel Kahneman, they talk a lot about um nudges like recommendations by experts. This is like a technique that you can use both offline and online. Um, And what I found personally very interesting is that um, in luxury stores um, offline, uh, typically the products are presented with a lot of white space around them. And this means, this this, this has the implication that the products seem to be of higher quality. And at the same time, this also means that of the shopper, the store becomes more high quality and more expensive as well. But this same technique of white space you can also apply online. And um, both online and in the offline environment, people think that items that are presented on top, let's say on top of the screen or top of the shelf, are more high quality and better and higher price have an high, and have a higher price than at the bottom. So. These um, perceptions that shoppers have um, are applicable both in the online and offline environment. So if you look at it from a human perspective, uh, much is the same, or the, the type of response is the same, but of course, uh, um, yeah, technology can make a difference and can produce uh, different
0: environments. I know your book is not intended to be comedy, um, but I did find – I did get a chuckle out of one part, uh, not because it was funny per se, but it was ironic. Um, it was an observation you pointed out that, that not only can shoppers be irrational in their decision-making, but so can those who make decisions on assortment. Um, yeah. yeah. It's funny how we like to think of customers as being subject to system one biases, well, at the same time, we fail to see that these biases exist in our own decision making. Um, so t- tell us more about this observation.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, we talk a lot about it you know, at, at shopper conferences and about the, you know, how, whatever, how irrational people are or shoppers are. And uh, we forget we are shoppers and we as decision makers are irrational as well um, sometimes or maybe um a lot of times, I don't. I'm not sure, but we are great in making in creating contexts that are extremely challenging for shoppers, uh, and we sometimes forget that we operate in extremely challenging environments ourselves. And, and these are the environments where we make decisions um, on behalf of shoppers, and we make assortment decisions, all kinds of decisions. So. Um, we are now competing with companies from countries we have never heard of. And all the time, products pop up. We we have no clue what they do, if they compete with us or not. Um, uh, technologies like, for example, force assistance arise. And we we'll still figure out what they can do and what they mean. And if we should invest in them, yes or no. Um, so... These environments are very challenging for us as decision makers. Uh, if we want to, if you if you ask me questions like, "Well, what is the right assortment and what is the right number of products the category should hold?" Um, and in those situations, what I notice is that we ourselves um, apply simple rules of thumb. This is actually what what our shoppers do as well. We what we do as well. And um, an example of that is that. Um, I, I observed that when, uh, produce, when a brands ask for space on shelf, they often like to compare their share of space with the share of sales. And of course, um, they say, well, my share of, of sales is uh, very high and I want to have more space. But this is like like a really basic um, uh, 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 yeah, rule of thumb. And I was in an assignment at the same time I was reading an academic paper that actually claimed that even the most basic algorithm will beat this rule of thumb. So you will have like uh, six to 20% higher profits if you uh, start applying the most simple algorithms that are a little bit more complex than rules of thumb. And well, to be honest, I applied this rule of thumb as well and many others. And sometimes, you know, um, in, in difficult times and uh, difficult contexts, you, you need to do so, but um, never forget that um, let's say our our decision environments have become so challenging that we should start applying uh, um, more technology in our daily work. So the buyers and category managers managers cannot do without it anymore. They um, um, I observed that, uh, of course, in food retail, it's um, you know, it's, it's like a common practice. But very often, still in non-food retail, people like to um, uh, use their gut feeling and experience, and 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 and, and don't use, don't apply uh, new decision techniques and new um, technology to make better decisions.
0: Your point is a good one, um, and, and, and that's one of my favorite examples is the uh, space-to-sales ratio, and it's an argument that is always made between manufacturers and buyers. Um, I used to work for a, manufacturer, a food manufacturer where three SKUs in the uh, category segment made up, uh, I'll use a false number, but uh, 50% of sales. Which which would imply that those three SKUs should get 50% of the space. But of course, that would just be ridiculous. And so, yeah. and, uh, you know, and it, it doesn't deserve 50% of the space because somehow with the space that it had, it was able to do 50%. So, so you know, what would be your, um, you know, your point of diminishing returns when you're adding more space? That would probably come very, very quickly. But... Um, but on, um, you know, you talked just now and also in your book about using smart data uh, combined with creative techniques to build an assortment. Uh, all of that is good, all of that is important, but, um, but for those who may not have the tools or capacity to approach assortment planning in kind of that textbook fashion, um, and at the risk of oversimplifying what is inherently not simple, um, but to the point that all rules of thumb are not bad, can you suggest some rules of thumb for composing an effective assortment, which which would be good rules of thumb.
1: Yeah, so, not so. Let's say I agree. There are always let's say situations that we need to make a, a quick and dirty decision. Now about you know we need to we are in store and we want to make an assessment of the level of assortment variety and if the actually the assortment assortment would actually fit the retail concept. So that's fine. So let's say um, are you to make that. Basic assessment if the assortment is well composed. I use um, uh, five principles, which I actually for that I actually use an acronym, which is R E D U B, and which is short for rotating extreme death unique brands. And I think we talked about it in, uh, just before. Um, and you will be, you know, really stupid to. Eliminate the most rotating, most favorite products uh, uh, from the assortment. Uh, However, don't forget um, if you have the Coca-Cola on shelf, if you have the highest rotating item on shelf, it is a signal to the shopper that the assortment is complete. Also, um, think about out-of-stock situations. So if it's not on shelf, immediately there is a signal to the shopper that the assortment is not complete and much is missing, failing. Um, The E is for an extreme choice. And this is something you can actually observe in um, um, do-it-yourself stores that sell paint. I believe um, do-it-yourself stores can sell over uh, 3.5 million colors. um, And many of them are never purchased. Um, So I believe uh, some 80, 85% of the colors of the sales comes from white colors, but still it's interesting for the do-it-yourself stores to offer extreme uh, colors like, well, really strange pink colors that you would never use for uh, painting your walls. But those extreme colors could actually help um, um, be like a signpost in the assortment. And also the extreme choices help facilitate the selection process. So having like this low rotating extreme flavor or um, item uh, in the assortment could actually really help people uh, make better decisions. Uh, The D is for depth of assortment. And I think many people uh, are familiar with the uh, shopper decision tree concept uh, where you try to of a full assortment based on let's say, category dependent attributes. If you are a buyer, certainly when you're a buyer, you want to look for unique products. Um, um, So make sure there is always an item uh, that only you can offer uh, in the assortment. And and also what I learned is that um, uh, the B is for brands. Um, It's really important to offer a variety, a selection of brands. And it's important for several reasons. Um, Shoppers like to look for good, better, best in the assortment, so that's one. And I also noticed that um, um, that happens a lot in um, uh, organic stores that operate with less well-known brands. If you don't have the famous brands in the assortment, People need more time. And of course, if you become like a regular um, customer of this organic store, uh, this will be fine. You know, over time, you familiarize yourself with the assortment and everything will be okay. But at first, if you are, let's say, a a new shopper, new customer to those stores, you look for certain signals for well-known brands. So having those brands in, uh, really helps as a, again, like a an, a point of reference where from a basis from where you can start making a selection from the assortment. So five basic principles uh, that you can use. And if you use them well, it actually means that you offer a, um, a, a well-composed variety uh, to the shopper, not necessarily a a. A large assortment, but you offer do offer variety uh, in a manageable
0: way for the shopper. Uh, I especially like the extreme um, extreme item um, contribution. You know, really providing the decoy effect. Uh, people yep. are you know have extremeness aversion. They don't necessarily want the the most expensive option, nor do they want the least expensive option. And so by by really giving them the tool that they're looking for with with your choice of what is most extreme can guide their um, consideration and decisions toward certain areas of the assortment. So that, that one's uh, a, a special favorite of mine. Um, you know when constant, in retail so much is important, um, hence the saying, retail is detail. You know, and there's only so much time in a day. Retailers can't do everything um, that they know they want uh, or need to do. So they have to prioritize and focus on what they feel really matters most. Um, you know, and from a marketing mix standpoint, how would you say a sorbent is compared to, you know, some of the other retail marketing instruments like pricing and advertising and the like? You know, should, can you can you propose an argument that, You know, assortment should be among the top priority considerations and not fall to the bottom of the list.
1: Yeah. So let's say um, that was one of the questions I had uh, when I started uh, with the with the book. How important is assortment, and can you actually make uh, a difference with assortment? And again, um, Amazon offers more than six hundred million products. How can you actually compete with Amazon because they always have more, and we can only can only be one player that has, let's say, most assortment. How, so how can you do better? And how does that work? Um, let's say, let me start by saying that having a quick and convenient access to, uh, to the store still remains the most important driver of store traffic. So uh, you, you probably know this, uh, this famous joke, what are the three most important reasons to visit the store? Um, that drives traffic, that drives traffic, uh, location, location, location. And, and that's still true. So location is number one. Um, so both, let's say, that's also why, let's say, the online stores and convenience stores in uh, city centers do, do so well uh, right now. But what I learned from the studies is that after location, or after convenient access, um, assortment is the most important Driver of store traffic and not price because I had expected price. Um, let's say in the studies I see that there there will always be specific groups of people that are extremely price sensitive, and will um, and 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 they will whatever um, 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 think that uh, let's say the quality of assortment is less important than price. But these are really smaller groups, and so but really the how you build your assortment, how many layers, the quality, the type of brands, the fact that if you have, let's say, unique own label, um, those um, characteristics are more important than price. Um, So yeah, so let's say after a location, I would say that assortment is the most important driver of store
0: traffic. I'm glad that you've actually not just given some thought to that, but have some research to, to support your point of view. Um, let's go back to rules of thumb for a second. Um, let's say you were a manufacturer, not, not, not a retailer, although I guess this might apply to a retailer too. But would you rather invest more, would you rather invest in more space for your product or better quality space for that product where do you get the best return for your investment is there kind of a a rule of thumb all-purpose answer to that question
1: yeah well this this probably uh comes back to one of the biggest mistakes i made in my career so spending too much time on space rather on the amount of space than the quality of space because you know so much of my career has been dedicated to trying to get more share of, uh, of uh, shelf and uh, more display locations and, and always more. And, um, well, I've come to realize that actually the quality of space is far more important. And I also found some, uh, some academic um, um, yeah, evidence on that. Um, let's say there is a meta-analysis uh, conducted by German professor Eisend And he concluded that a change of space of, let's say, 10% will only result in a change of sales of 1.7%. At the same time, there are also academic uh, studies that show that if you uh, relocate a product from the worst location on shelf to the best location on shelf, you can increase sales by almost 60%. So, this is like... an these studies show that, uh, to me, that we should spend more time on how we place the products, how we ma- merchandise them, uh, rather than just um, uh, ambitiously uh, trying to get a second uh, of a product or even more facings, because um, that will not make it a lot of difference. There are exceptions. Uh, they, these are also clear in the studies. For example um if the category is um, is more an impulse category um, the elasticity of space is much higher much higher than for routine categories and for uh, commodities uh, but overall both from a on a product level and on the category level the elasticity of space is very small yeah, yeah for me there was a big learning in the um uh, uh when when reading all the papers um uh, because I I realized that i I had I was doing wrong I was I, making was not investing
0: my time well in my career well again it goes back to the um you know the quote unquote irrational decision making by those of us in in the practice of, of planning uh, assortment and the presentation of and um and it was it's it's been a, a, a rule of thumb that has cost the industry an incredible amount of, you know, not just effort, but money in trying yeah. to get more and more and more space. Um, yeah. You know, there is a positive space elasticity for the most part. So it's not to say that more space isn't bad, but better space, you get a, a, a much stronger return on your investment and, and better to turn your attention there than just trying to get more of. So I'm glad you addressed yeah. that. That's that's such a great point.
1: Yeah. And in my, if I may, let's say in the study, I also compare, let's say, space elasticity with the elasticities of other marketing instruments. So um, so um, let's say the investment in space is almost at the, is even worse than the investment in uh, advertising. So we all know about this. Again, this this, this joke about um uh, um, we invest uh, 50 percent uh, of my advertising money wrongly. But we don't know which 50 percent. Um, let's say this is um, that was a big uh, revelation to me as well.
0: Well, unfortunately, you and I will be long into retirement um, before a marketer ever transfers money from advertising into um, better quality space yeah (laughs) unfortunately but you're right the evidence is is there and it's and it's clear and compelling um you know there there are so many specific um elements within your book i'd love to talk about but for the sake of time um i'm I'm gonna just step back and and ask some more macro level questions so for example you know early you talked about the application of the of your principles to both food and non-food retail environments Um, but, but you argued that your principles can be even more important to non-food retailers because of the significant gap between the time assortment decisions are made and the time that they're merchandised in store. Um, you, you talked a little bit about this. Um, are there, are there other merchandising, um, concepts that are especially important for non-food products?
1: Yes, I, I think so. Um, There are some concepts that will be particularly relevant for in a non-food environment. So, uh, for example, the concept of style groups. And style groups for me describe a preference for a combination of design, material, consumption patterns, attributes like color. So style groups are really important whenever fashion trends play an important role. So, for example, in home decor retail or um, in, in well, in fashion stores in clothing uh, industry. And um, well, as a retail marketer, you can decide to uh, group the products based on style groups in your store, or you can um, group them by merchandise them by uh, type of clothing. So, for example, you can um, uh, place uh, group all the um, shirts together and the trousers or you can actually create a style group and merchandise them uh, the trouser and the uh, shirt together so these are important concepts uh, for uh, in the non-food uh, area um, and what makes it so interesting for marketers is that if you invest to time in understanding better the style groups that are relevant for your category, you start to understand that these are driven by long-term values in our society and by personality traits. So they are more sustainable than we think. And that makes it really interesting for a non-food retailer to understand them because you actually, you can um, merchandise items together, which um, uh, in, a, in a way, it makes it more, uh, feel more um, uh, compelling and uh, uh, gives a, a, a better assortment perception to the shopper. But at the same time, you can um, position yourself based on those style groups. And of course, um, uh, fashion trends will change, or impact color and design, but still within the scope of a style group. So it's important to understand that in non-food retail, in do-it-yourself, in fashion, in home decor, Um, And the other important um, concept that I would mention uh, from a merchandise perspective is, well, it's a strange name, but it's called contamination. Um, And what I mean with that is that, uh, for example, in a fashion store, intuitively, uh, shoppers will try to find out if the same shirt that they are trying on has just been tried on by somebody else or touched by another chopper uh, just before they were in store. And mm. they will use all kinds of clues for that. And as a result, if they feel that it has been tried on before, the, the shirt feels less fresh and contaminated. So it's a very basic, intuitive, uh, irrational thing, um, but still very important. Um, and retailers can actually start to address these, these fears of contamination by encouraging staff to um, to collect returns at the dressing rooms as efficient as possible, and perhaps even return them into the selling space as if they were fresh fresh deliveries um, um, that just came off the truck. So um, um, let's say the concept of, of, of contamination um, is, is important, especially in, in non-food retail.
0: So, Constant, uh, let me ask you this, I, I, I know you have a point of view on this because you talked about it in your book, but the importance of, or rather the preference of merchandising things by attribute versus merchandising them by benefit. Um, which would you say is the better choice? And uh, and does it differ whether it's a food or a non-food retail environment?
1: Well, let me start by saying that there is no difference between a food and non-food environment. And um, um, when it comes to a better choice, it depends on your objectives. So let me explain what will be the implications of merchandising, by attribute versus merchandising by benefit. But to give you a simple example, which I... um, Well, it's actually also based on an academic uh, um, study uh, where they researched um, the merchandising of garden plants. And the garden plants were either grouped by attribute, like begonias, carnations, petunias, or the same plants, the same number of plants and the same composition, were merchandised by benefit. And I like the benefits that they, they use because they use benefits like um, uh, certain producing certain fragrance or uh, the benefit of attracting uh, butterflies, um, well, etc. So again, remember these are the same plants, uh, the same number, but just merchandised in a different way. But they do have a really different effect. Uh, uh, on people and if uh, the same plans are merchandised by benefit, people are far more satisfied with their choice and with the assortment but they also need less assortment they actually start comparing less whereas if you merchandise by by attribute, immediately people start uh, comparing the assortment uh, items and um, it might actually trigger um, that people search for price differences and the impact might even be stronger for shoppers that are more price sensitive. So mm-hmm. um, uh, the choice of, um, let's say, merchandising by benefit or attribute is is, is very important uh, choice that retailers need to make. When you realize it is that, um, and I think we talked about that at the beginning of the, uh, of the podcast, is that convenience stores uh, could actually merchandise by benefit. Um, they could use all kinds of solutions like meal deal or lunch deal or whatever, all kinds of solutions to the shopper. And at the same time, because it is merchandised by benefit, automatically people don't look for the difference uh, among the items. And they are um, more satisfied in an intuitive way um, Mm -hmm. with their solution. Whereas if you are in a regular grocery store and these whatever, these cereal bars or garden plants or whatever are merchandised by attribute, by the case of uh, cereal bars, by you know the chocolate and the uh, the diet flavors and whatever, people automatically look for a difference. Among the items, so um, and they also need more items to do so.
0: You could talk about this for probably two hours, right, because you spent a lot of time on your book on on this particular area um, and 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 did a very nice job. Um, but th- that's thank you. You, you've 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 addressed it at a high level very, very well, so thank you for that so um, so given everything we talked about, um, if you're a retailer, How might you begin putting this learning into practice right away? Like, like what can they start doing that might have an immediate impact on their assortments and their merchandising effectiveness, while at the same time improving the experience for their shoppers? Is there like, you know, a step number one? Well,
1: this is probably your most difficult question, because, you know, the the, the starting point will be different for all of us. So that's, it's like uh, uh, difficult. Um, My advice to practitioners would be to start thinking about the level of assortment variety that their shopper, that their customer seeks. So um, if you realize that your shopper needs a lot of variety in your category, in your retail environment, but you don't have the assortment ready yet, you can actually start applying all kinds of smart merchandising techniques. So and you will find examples in my book. And on the other hand, if your shopper experiences a lot of choice stress, you may want to reduce the assortment. However, um, there is competition out there. So you want to make sure that the um, your perception of variety, your perception that they have of the quality of assortment um, doesn't go down. So. You want to do that if you want to uh, reduce the assortment. You want to make sure that you keep the same number of brands, and you want to maintain the category space. So you're probably going to double face, which is you know contradictory to the advice we gave earlier, but still you know um, like a quick and dirty advice of what people can do uh, right away, making sure um, that they check the desired assortment variety that a shopper needs. And another very practical uh, step that retailers could take is to um, uh, start measuring uh, the impact and the level of assortment variety that they offer, because it can be objectively measured. So still too often, what I notice, what I observe as a consultant is that if if you ask people how to build the assortment and how many items should be included in the assortment, people look at competition and they start counting the number of items that their competitors have in the um, uh, in the assortment. And uh, what I found is guess what? there is always a competitor. That offers a, a larger number of products, and there's always an Amazon out there that you can never beat. So stop doing so, and um, and and what I yeah what I advise them is start to look at the uh, perception that people, your shoppers, your target group uh, has of the assortment, and if they feel um, it needs um, an amendment. Either in the actual number or in the perception that they have, and again, you can, if you are not ready yet, you can use smart merchandising techniques uh, to um, um, yeah to restore uh, to re- to amend the uh, uh, the perception.
0: There really was only right one right answer to the question that I asked. And that is the first thing they could do is to buy your book. I think. A movie. A movie on <laughs> Well, uh, to that point, let's. Um, I, I think you've probably given people enough uh, to know what they're going to find in the book, and and hopefully to want to read it um, and use it as their own reference. Um, first of all, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk about it. This this has been a, a wonderful, wonderful discussion. Um, you know, I understand that you were offering a limited time discount for those who might be interested in getting a copy. Um, how can people get it, and and how can they take advantage of that limited time discount? Okay, well, I um, think uh, they
1: can. I think they can reach out to me, but they can also reach out to you. So people can um, um, send me an email on uh, constant dot at gmail.com, or they can also. Um, fill out the contact page at my website which is www.constant-opportunities.com uh, and I believe they uh,
0: also find that you are also find if they reach out to you absolutely so uh, just for everyone's reference the book is called assortment and merchandising strategy building a retail plan to drive shopper experience and um, and a must read for people who make a living from this type of work Um, So thank you again, Constantine. It was terrific talking to you. um, And, uh, you know, best of luck on whatever your third book happens to be. Well, many thanks for inviting me. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.